Hello and welcome to the LARB Radio Hour, brought to you by Reader Supported LA Review of Books. I'm your host, Eric Newman, and I'm alone again in the remote recording studio today, while Kate and Medea continue to shake off the COVID waves that hit their homes last week. However, I'm happy to report that everyone is feeling much, much better. For this week's show, I spoke with Hilton Owls about his new book, My Pinup, a slim volume that reflects on his relationship to Prince as a polymath musician, generous creative artist, and queer icon. In this conversation, we talk in part about Hilton's youth, a time when he remembers feeling afraid of being outed to family members and others if he was identified too closely with Little Richard, but then how as an adult he came to find power and resilience in the figure of Prince. Queer people carry this and other fears our entire lives, the fear that the world will come at us with violence, anger, and rejection simply for being who we are and for loving who we love. Queer community and queer spaces are refuges from that fear, a place where we can be ourselves without looking over our shoulders. And that's why the shooting this past weekend at Club Q in Colorado Springs, an act of hatred that took the lives of Daniel Aston, Kelly Loving, Ashley Paw, Derek Rump, and Raymond Green Vance, cut so deep for me, and I'm sure for many of you listening out there. But at times like these, I'm also inspired by the long history of queer activism and the power and resilience of our diverse community. That community and its legacy reminds me that in the face of violence, there is still love, there is still dancing, and there is still queer joy. We send our love to the victims, to their families, their lovers, and friends. And turn now to my conversation with Hilton Owls about his new book, My Pinup. I'm thrilled to have Hilton Alls with me on the line today. Hilton is a renowned writer and theater critic, and you will no doubt recognize his name from many probing and beautifully wrought pieces in The New Yorker magazine, where he has been a staff writer since 1994. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, My Pinup, a hybrid memoir slash essay that explores questions of race, desire, and autonomy through an intense and intimate focus on Hilton's relationship with and to polymath musician and sexual dynamo, Prince. By looking at Prince as a subject of queer desire and being, and at his recording career as a study in the struggle between black excellence and white corporate control, my pinup prose the simultaneous allure of black queer aesthetics and its disavowal in the hostile terrains of the music industry and American culture. The memoir essay form offers us a chance to remember and get close to the Prince that was, and to mourn the Prince that could have been. Welcome to the show, Hilton. It's a pleasure to have you. I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you for asking. Can you talk a little bit about how this particular memoir essay project came about? Kind of what prompted you to start thinking about Prince in the way that you do in my pinup? Well, you know, it's very interesting. It's had a long history. It began, I had written it and put it away. I had spent that time with him and a young woman I knew at Harper's asked if I had any material that I wasn't using. This is the way that often that sometimes the best things happen in New York publishing, just when people ask you a question. And every writer always has more than anybody can use generally. And I had this piece and I sent it in. And to my surprise, it was accepted. I say to my surprise because it was not a conventional piece of 
journalism and the exchange with him wasn't a conventional interview. It was more like sitting around and, you know, sort of vibing on each other, basically. And one of the things that happened that I learned in retrospect was that he had was giving every journalist about 15 minutes. And it turned out that because he spent those hours with me, that a lot of the writers didn't get to interview him and they were very angry with me afterwards. But I think one of the things that I wanted to convey, which was unusual, was his interest in me, which made it a kind of unconventional piece of journalism, as I say. But also I wanted to remember that feeling of a great American artist and how they they really work almost completely on intuition. And I loved that he was interested in me and interested a lot. What I noticed was that he was really very much involved in winning the approval or wanting the approval of Black men in particular. You could tell that Maceo, when Maceo comes into the room or Larry Graham, he was very anxious that they, you know, like him. And you always forget that when someone has that kind of power and that kind of um, renown, that they are human and longing to connect, which is one reason that they're making art, right? Is that they, they really want to connect to other people. So he wanted to connect to me, and it was really, um, it was very touching. A lot of the threads that I just want to pick up from that great opening that you've given us here returns to kind of Prince's fraught status as somebody who is, on the one hand, lionized. You know, he's a musical genius. He's written so many number one records. He's prolific. He's incredible. But he's also treated as kind of a freak. You know, like you open up my pinup with Jamie Foxx's 2002 comedy special, I Might Need Security in which he's talking about meeting Prince and feeling attracted to him. And others have done this. This was the source of a Dave Chappelle skit as well. When they played basketball. Exactly, shirts and skins. And this is a moment when suddenly Jamie Foxx's heterosexual masculinity seems to be suddenly porous. It's in question. (laughs) Or challenged. (laughs) Yeah, or challenged, right? Yeah, because he finds himself attracted to Prince. And it's a tension that, Fox's jokes attempt to connect with the audience as a kind of site of shared, if uncomfortable, experience, but it all relegates Prince to the kind of status of a freak or a problem, I guess, is another way of thinking about it. So can you talk just a little bit first about Prince's visual and sexual allure as a performer? Like what made him so, because they talk all the time about the look and his eyes, Right. So what is it that makes him so magnetic in a way that can throw normative, you know, at least black men in this case, off of their, you know, regular masculinity, off their game and their masculinity and sexuality? I think it has a lot to do with what the stage allowed him to be was free. Mm -hmm. I think that when you that one of the things that is incredibly powerful about him was his ability to access a kind of freedom that didn't so much dispel Black masculinity as included. And I think that his ability to not be, quote-unquote, one way 
when conveying ideas about sex or sexuality was incredibly liberating and confusing to these guys. And as we know, sex is one of the great things about sex and sexuality is that it is confusing to everyone if you have desire. It's never straightforward. And I think that he was the visual an oral, A-U-R-A-L, representation of that kind of power that he was able to harness and express what others find confusing was an incredible gift. And the gift was liberating. He draws on a number of traditions within the Black aesthetic, I guess, or Black American aesthetic, I should say. There's a kind of, you know, you think about analogs being like Little Richard, for example. There's the, I believe at one point you talk about how it's it's a marriage of the sacred and the profane. The vocal aesthetics, the aural aesthetics of the gospel singer and the R&B singer that then also meets the aesthetics of the androgene. So it's that kind of like that gospel singer in between, right? So it's like he he might be gay, but he's also devout. And somehow in the sight of performance, he can become both a figure of incredible fixation, but also a figure that is allowed to be himself in a very rare circumstance. So I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about what Prince meant to you, both visually, aesthetically, culturally, as a young gay black man. Well, again, I think this goes back to the idea that we were discussing a little bit earlier about freedom. And I think that he was visually such a catalyst for queerness for me. I can't remember when Prince came out. I was a teenager, but I had had that experience once before, and it was with Little Richard when I was, you know, little and I saw some performance on TV. And he really scared me, Little Richard. And the reason that he scared me was that he was articulating what I was afraid of most which was my queer self, right? That that self was going to be talked about, pitied, not treated well, attacked. And I didn't want anyone to know. I didn't want anyone to do those things to me. And Little Richard, if they saw that I was identifying with Little Richard or that I was afraid of him, mostly, it would be very bad for me. That, you know, my feelings for him, my fear of him would out me to people in my neighborhood, cousins, mostly all of them straight guys. So I didn't speak to that. I ran away from Little Richard. A number of years passed and Prince had the same effect, except that he wasn't, he was of my generation, more or less, but also there was a greater distance because I was more comfortable with my sexuality. And I was a different person and I was less fearful so that there was room for me to love him and be fascinated by him. By the time he started putting out those extraordinary records and I didn't have to be frightened of myself in order to love him. I didn't have to repress the part of me that loved him. And I, I wanted to love him, and I could, much more readily than little Richard, who frightened me because I didn't want to have access to my own sexuality at that point. You know, it strikes me that, especially in the way that you recount a narrow 
part of his career and kind of trying to give the grand sweep of it, that Prince was also somebody who, let's say that there were as many doors as were open, there were a lot of doors that were closed. And in large part, if we think about his career, the story of Prince is also the story of the struggle of a black artist to retain and or regain power and control over his creative output. You know, so you, for example, talk about the breach with Warner Brothers in 1996, when Prince was released from his contract and began publishing his music with full ownership of the masters, right? So ownership of the rights over the masters is what allows a musician to control a huge amount of the residuals that their creative output earns over a lifetime. Can you talk a little bit about that break and why that issue was so important for Prince? I think that the music business is or was a fairly corrupt business, right? That people got credit for things that they shouldn't have gotten credit for, or they got absented when they shouldn't have been absented. And I think that Prince, through being incredibly generous, let's remember that he had written for a lot of other people and helped revive careers. I think Shaka Khan would be the first to tell you that. I think it was fairly simple for him, which is that you want to own your masters, you want to own your voice. And I think that in the music business, which I don't know that much about, he was bound to a contract that didn't allow for his growth or didn't account for his growth, I should say. And by not accounting for his growth, they couldn't tell who he was and what he meant to be and how he was going to move forward. And it became, I think, like bondage to him. And I think that's why he used the word slave. And I think that's why there was a kind of confusing period, right, after Love Sexy and all that. Like, where did the records go? Who was putting them out? It was a different time. I mean, we have to remember, too, that music got to us one way or two ways, radios and CDs. And Mm -hmm. now I think had he hung on, I think he would have enjoyed this moment very much, that the music was for the people. He would have made his money on touring, which is what he did. And getting the music out there would have been less of a hassle for him. I remember asking him about movies and would he make movies? And he said, it's just such a hassle, you know, dealing with all those meetings and he just wanted to do his own thing. So I think it was always kind of like that. It came down to him really wanting to do his own thing. It also seems like you're talking about a moment in his career where he's also navigated a kind of interesting transition between the music and cultural scene that he was a part of in the 1980s and then in the 1990s. Can you kind of talk about how Prince changed during that time? I think it's like any great writing, right? That things become more complicated and it's like a great writer or a great actress. You know, they become more interesting with time because there's more things to draw on. So I think that the if you listen to an album like Dirty Mind compared to, you know, Sign the Times, it's not, it's the same artist, but this depth, the reach and the depth is completely different. And so he's, mm. you know, Dirty Mind, he's doing pop songs and they're very funny and pleasant. And then he's also doing, later with Sign the Times, he's writing a novel. It's a different situation. It's a different level of consciousness. And 
that has everything to do with growing, of growing to be a great thinker about art and a person who's experienced more. So I think it's just the experience and the will and the talent to articulate that experience. You also talk about towards the time that you met with him, which I believe is in the mid-90s, right? No, it would be later. 2000? Was that in the 2000s? Yeah, when yeah. When you met him really, while he was on really, tour? Think, yeah. Okay, so prior to that, you know, around the time of this breakup with Warner Brothers and kind of moving on to doing his own thing, and I should also say helping a lot of artists to do their own thing. I think it's important before we go on to to see how much he did for other people. It's just an incredibly difficult... I think it's important for us to see the breadth of it. It's sort of, we forget with bigger artists, we always take it for granted that they're really mostly Mm self-interested. And I think that he was really also equally interested in other people. So I just want to mention that. Yeah. And one of those people that I did not realize this until reading my pinup is that he actually offered Lauren Hill a space in which to record and control her own recordings. You know, and he did that for a number of other artists. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. We've been speaking with Hilton Owls, author of My Pinup. We'll return to that conversation in just a moment, but first, we have this week's book recommendation. We're thrilled to have Dion Irving back with us on the line today. Dion is the author most recently of The Islands, a short story collection centered on the experience of diaspora across Canada, the United States, Jamaica, England, and France. She joins us today for this week's book recommendation. So Dion, what book are you recommending? Thank you so much. The book that I read this year that I cannot stop talking about is A Little Devil in America, Notes and Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Abdurraqib. Oh, I love Hanif Abdurraqib's writing. Me too. And I'm just obsessed with this book. I can't stop talking about it. I just love the way he navigates this idea of Black performance and the ways in which Black performance is so complicated and complex and the ways in which that performance is about music and about literature and about dance. And he does such an interesting job at looking at Whitney Houston and Dave Chappelle and complicating this notion of performance. For me, this book sort of brings together work that I had like been reading about from other writers. Zadie Smith's got a great essay called Dance Lessons for Writers. And there was a great, it's probably 20 years old now, article in The Believer called If He Hollers, Let Him Go about Dave Chappelle leaving his show. And I feel like Hanif brings all that together and talks about Josephine Baker, who I've been desperately trying to write about myself for a long time. And yeah. Oh yeah, talk about a fascinating figure. Oh my gosh, so, so fascinating. And such an interesting way to think about how we think about Black performance in America and the nature of performance and politics Mm -hmm. and what and how we use our 
platforms for it and the ways in which America is both supportive and, and rejecting of how Black performers have used that platform. So I love this book. I cannot recommend it highly enough. All right. Can you give us the full title and author one more time? A Little Devil in America, Notes in Praise of Black Performance by Hanif Adurki. Thank you so much. We've been speaking with Dion Irving, author of The Islands. You are listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Now, back to our conversation with Hilton Owls, author of My Pinup. It also seems in this moment that Prince takes a turn towards religion and that that perhaps like necessarily means a turning away from the androgynous and freeform sexuality that had been such a part of his onstage persona. Can you talk a little bit about that and what that meant for you as someone who, like many of us, had kind of loved the queer and open signifier, let's say, that Prince had kind of come to represent? I wasn't really mad at him for evolving past his garters and tights and stuff because I think, you know, he was just a person who was evolving. So whether he was in a trench coat and panties or in a Prince version of a suit, they were all to me part of who he was. And I think that one of the things that I found so compelling about him was, again, this evolution. I didn't feel that he got more conservative at all. I think that the work was the point for him, and however he presented it was his choice. But I think that the work got never lost its power to enlighten, shock, and entertain through mm-hmm. sexual uh, innuendo and storytelling. I just think he used different props after a while. Mm, I see. So this was not like necessarily a turning away. It's just an evolution of who he was as an artist. Absolutely. So I want to get to that part in the book where you reflect on meeting Prince. So we had said this was kind of in the early 2000s while he was on tour and you were doing a profile for Harper's. Is that right? Or who were you originally? The original was for The New Yorker. For The New Yorker. Mm -hmm. Can you talk just about what it was like to meet Prince? Like to see somebody that... The other thing about Prince is that he's so visual and so sonic, right? That it's like then when you see to use the title of your book, that pin-up in person. What is it like? Well, it's like going on a date and showing up and and being surprised that the person is really beautiful, that they're more beautiful than their photographs, and that there's more gentleness than you expected. I thought he was incredible, incredibly compelling, just as a figure. His face, his ability to project quiet, really, was the shocking thing because, as you say, Sonic was such a big part of his being, but there was also his incredible ability to listen. And so when those exchanges with other musicians or with me, he was a real, it felt as if he was a real constructive listener. I just felt that he was kind of interested in other people. For sure, he had the ego to be Prince, which was important. But I also loved, he was a kind of really constructive and seductive listener, too. There's an interesting anecdote that you include where Prince kind of by hooking you up with some other people 
tries to, I think, convert you to become a Jehovah's Witness. And work with him on a book, yeah. (laughs) And work with him on a book, yeah. So work on the book and a book. So can you talk a little bit about what that was like? I mean, I imagine that must have, the offer to work on a book must have been very exciting, if like kind of all of a sudden, but the attempted conversion, I'm sure, was also a little bit like, wait, what's going on here? Well, that was like, for a reporter, that was gold, right? That uh, Sure, of course. Yeah, you've got your great anecdote. And Prince wants to be your brother in some way. So that was like gold in terms of writing. The religious stuff separate from that wasn't so interesting to me personally. But again, as a writer, it was fascinating. I think I was completely in reporter mode. So I was outside of the situation looking in and very touched that he wanted me to be part of something that was really important to him at that point. And also, it was hard to turn down the offer of writing a book with him, but I also knew that I couldn't be in Paisley Park for the rest of my life, that I had this feeling that if I'd done it, that's what I would be doing, you know? Do you think that's a thing that a lot of people felt when they kind of got into Prince's Orbit? I know that it's an issue for some people that he he sort of takes you over or took you over. I just was afraid of that, actually. Somewhat related, you talk throughout my pinup about the loneliness that you imagine Prince must have felt. I just think put yourself in his shoes, you know, that the relationships hadn't worked out, that he had lost that child. I think he was trying to connect. And I think that if you don't have a core family... You know, that's yours. You're kind of adrift, I think. Do you think that's why he might have pulled people into his orbit so intensely, just out of a desire to feel and maintain connection? And also to work. I think he was a workaholic, and Mm. it was partly to connect connect emotionally and then also to, to work, you know? You know, as we kind of wrap up, the saddest part of this story is in 2018, Prince passed away due to an accidental overdose of fentanyl, which is an opioid that has destroyed countless lives across this country. I wanted to know, you know, where you were when you heard the news that Prince had died and what your first thoughts were. My first thoughts were, what an evil thing to have happened to the world. My other thought was that I wanted him to come back. You know, I wanted him to come back from the dead. And my third thought was, um, I'm so sorry that he was in so much pain. And I remember reading an interview with Shaka Khan, and she said, listen, I'm a drug addict, and I didn't even even know that he had a problem. So Mm -hmm. I think that he kept it away from people, and and that he was in such physical pain that he needed to take it but that he also couldn't stop performing at that high level. You know, it was his life. What do you want folks to remember about Prince? What has writing this book helped you process about Prince, about your relationship to him as an artist, as an inspiration? I just want people to remember him as a great American artist, really. And that he um, has this way of being that was incredibly moving and unique. And we should be so lucky to have another person like that in our lives during the span of our lives, because that's an incredible 
gift to have been given. Do you think that there's any artist today that you think kind of takes up the mantle or at least is maybe working in the tradition of Prince? You know, so many of them don't play instruments and so many of them don't sing, really. That's another thing we should mention. Prince could literally play every single instrument in the band. And there would be times when he would rotate out and suddenly be playing drums. He would play rhythm guitar. He would play bass. No, I don't I don't see anyone who's comparable because they don't sing and they don't play instruments, mostly. You know, it's sort of auto-tune or fixed in the studio or whatever. But I think... You know, there are great artists, certainly, that have a completely different scale. I think someone like Björk is astonishing because mm. she does play the instruments, but her project is collaborative and and she sings beautifully. I think she's right up there, you know, in terms of importance, for sure. And then lastly, what's a song or two of Prince's? that you can't let go of? Housequake, Black Sweat, The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. I think those three. That sounds like a great place to end. Thank you so much, Hilton, for joining us. And thank you so much for all of your really thoughtful words and ways of parsing out Prince's complicated story. Oh, thank you so much. I'm honored. Thank you for having me. We've been speaking with Hilton Owls, author of My Pinup. Thanks for listening to the LARB Radio Hour. Subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts to help us get the word out. And we'd really love to hear from you. The producers of the LARB Radio Hour are Medea Ocher, Kate Wolf, and Eric Newman. Our executive producer is Alan Minsky. Our sound engineer is Ha Lee. Editorial production by Jake Levins. Our intro music was written and performed by Imogen Teasley-Vladimir.